Hello, and welcome to Sound and Image Lab, the Dolby Institute podcast. This is a show about how artists use technology to tell their stories, and I'm your host, Glenn Kaiser. We're celebrating a big milestone today at the Dolby Institute podcast because this is episode number 100 of our show. Uh, I never dreamed when I sat down a few years ago to talk with Randy Tom on episode number one about his career and his approach to sound design and his philosophy on making sound for movies that we would still be going strong 100 episodes later, but here we are. And uh, I think we've got a special episode for you today. You're going to enjoy this. We have director Edgar Wright, who is returning to the show for his second visit. He was on episode number 24, if you remember, talking with his longtime sound design and re-recording mixer collaborator, Julian Slater. And today they're back again with the addition of their composer, Stephen Price, to talk about their latest film, the thriller Last Night in Soho. Uh, this is a really fun movie and we had a great conversation about it. And it actually kind of points to um, a theme that I think has been emerging lately and a trend that I'm really happy to see, which is filmmakers thinking more kind of cohesively about the role of sound design and music together and working with those artists in conjunction to, to have a really cohesive approach to the track, which Last Night in Soho certainly does. Like many of Edgar Wright's films, this movie plays around a lot with genre and a tone and it has a really rich soundtrack, seamlessly melding sound design, score, and classic hit songs as he transports us back to another era, the seedy underbelly of 1960s London. So much like in our discussion with Denis Villeneuve and his team on Dune, Edgar brought his sound team on very early in the process, almost as if he were crafting many elements of the soundtrack even before the camera started rolling. So this is a fascinating glimpse into the creative process behind these three artists and how they were able to pull the amazing track for this film together. So I hope you enjoy this film and this conversation. So let's dive in and hear what they have to say. I always like to start with the filmmaker just asking, what was it about this particular story last night in Soho that kind of grabbed you, that made you feel like this is the, this is the story that I need to tell at this point in time? Uh, and where did the, how did the project start for you? I guess it's like a combination of things. I, I feel uh, some movies, and Baby Driver is similar, and Last Night in Soho as well, that they're just gestating in my head for such a long time that at a certain point I have to, it's like the it's like the film is haunting me and I have to exercise it by making the movie <laughs> otherwise I'll, I'll never stop thinking about it and so I guess like with this movie there's two sort of big inspirations one would be the decade of the 60s which I guess my obsession with that started through music through my parents record collection when I was growing up they used to have quite a slim box of 60s records that it seemed to stop dead when my older brother was born. There didn't seem to be any 70s albums. It was just like 60s albums, this one box. And so, and I never heard them listening to it, the, them. So I, you know, I, I would like steal the box and then I would just listen to these albums over and over and over again. And in a pre-internet, even like pre-TV in my room sort of era of just like listening to these albums and watching the vinyl go round and, and reading the small print on the albums over and over again. I just, um, you know, that's what started my obsession with the decade. And then moving to London 27 years ago and spending an enormous amount of time in Soho was the other inspiration because the shadow of the 60s looms really large over Soho, both the good and the bad. Like 
there was a point in the mid 60s where like London was like a world leader and the epicenter of cool in fashion and music and art and film. But also around that time as well, Soho was also well known as a, as well as being the heart of show business, it was also also a den of iniquity in terms of, um, you know, the criminal underworld and the sex industry. And it was a strange kind of, um, you know, that's just, you know, not, not even strange bedfellows, that, that weird thing where the two things seem to go together, where the, the, the high and the low coexisted. And it, it was like that when I moved to London in the 90s. And it's sort of slowly gone away, but not quite. <laughs> so it's an area that we all work all the time because all of the, you know, the kind of the post-production houses in London, are, 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 lots of them are based in Soho. And it's still like a very sort of compelling and sometimes disturbing area because even as it gets gentrified and stuff, like after midnight, the old Soho starts to kind of rise up. So, and this is a place where like, the three of us work a lot and many, many times have walked out of Delane Lee on Dean Street into sometimes kind of some quite kind of in, intense kind of energy in the air in Soho. So it's it's an area that's like very, um, has kind of um, influenced artists and writers for like 400 years. And this film is no exception. Can you talk a little bit about um, <clears throat> your writing process? I know you co-wrote this film, but as you're as you're writing and as you're working on the script, um, what are you thinking about in terms of sound design and music as you're actually writing? Is that something that is at the is 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 part of your consciousness as you're formulating the script? Well, the great thing about working with like Steve and Julian, and also my editor Paul Matchless, is that we work together so much that. It's great to be to be able to think about those elements when you're writing and also to be able to talk to everybody about it before we've shot a frame in the movie. So that's that's an unusual thing to do with like sort of uh, a composer and an even more unusual thing probably to do with, 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 with Julian to talk, you know, to the sort of sound designer and like about a film where you haven't shot a frame of it yet. But in, in as with Baby Driver and with this, it's something where I include everybody very early on. And, 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 and in this case, Steve wrote some of the score just based on the script. And in fact, that, that music, it, like obviously there's much more to it than that, but parts of that music sort of are in the finished film. So that to me is, I, I, you know, is, is, is a great, is a great collaboration where Steve could get inspired by just what's on the page and come up with something that's exactly you know, right for the movie before you've actually started filming. Some of the cues that Steve did as demos, I used to play in the auditions. You know, when I was doing some auditions for sort of scary sequences and I'd actually play what would eventually become some of the score of the music, let alone then what you can do on, on, um, on set when you can play the music that's happening or, or, you know, do sort of certain mixes of like existing songs or use the score on the set. Um, and I'm pretty sure, Julia, I'm sure that we, we had conversations with it before I started shooting as well. That'd be right. Correct. Wouldn't it? Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's kind of how it goes with Agri. He, he, as he says, he's got, as I leave uh, one movie, he's talking about, you know, three or four possibilities for his next ones. And sound is always kind of in, uh, entwined in there and conversations start even at that point, even as we're finishing the, 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 you know, the current movie and Edgar's already thinking about the next one. So, um, 
Yeah, I think I've said it before. It's it's when there's a collaboration that runs as deep as ours does, you know, including Paul as well, Matchless. It just makes for a great breeding ground of ideas, and um, you know, unlike pretty much all the other composers I work with, Steve is just a good friend. You know, we you know we swap texts twice or three times a week anyway from um, over the pond. And it just means that, um, you know, there's a great sharing of ideas as as the process is going through. There's, you know, we're swapping ideas and Steve is sending me what he's thinking of and we're sending him what, what we're thinking of. And it just it just breeds a good creative deduce, I'd say. You know, it just it, it just means that there's no no restrictions on ideas. Part of what I love about your about what you're talking about is that, you know, all too often there's a bit of a tug of war between the sound design and the music once you get to the final mixing stage and everybody feels like they're 100 percent responsible for the success or failure of the movie. So it's it's great to hear that you guys are talking about, you know, uh, the joint creative approach. And, and Edgar, I, I presume you're making some decisions about what what element is going to step forward at any given moment and kind of uh, drive the sonic experience for the film. I I don't know if that's true actually because I think we all we all work together. I think what's been really great about collaborating for so long is that there isn't that competition. I think probably if you get kind of you work on movies where departments are working independently from each other, then it becomes more of a scrabble in the final mix for everybody to be heard. But that hasn't really been the case with the way that we work because we all work so closely together, even with a first cut, and there'd be things where myself and Paul Matchless, the editor, would be throwing things to Stephen Julian saying like, hey, we need something for this and we need something for that, where we're, I mean, I guess in a way like that, to me, it's also about sort of transparency is that there's some sort of directors who like their method is not to tell the rest of the crew anything <laughs> and that they, they become dark and, dark and mysterious genius by doing that. But I like to sort of lay all my cards on the table and sort of say to the crew, I will give you as much to read, watch or listen to as, as much as you can take. And like, and so you're kind of like saying, if you want to be completely in the headspace of how I came up with this movie, I'm happy to tell you because to me, like, being a director, like the, the the thing that you're essentially trying to do with the cast and the crew is make sure that everybody is making the same movie. And the more that you can kind of communicate what the movie is, the better results you'll get. And then the great thing is, is like having worked with Stephen Julian for years now, we all we all know what we all know what we can do, and we're all looking to sort of push each other. And what can we do to kind of like keep sort of breaking new ground or try something new or experiment? And so there's no like wrong answer to anything. It's just like a great creative process. So I, I mean, and I'm speaking for you guys, but I don't feel like people get, we get as precious about each other's, I can see how that could happen on another movie. If you've got like a composer and like a sound team working separately from each other, that then in the, in the final mix, it's kind of like a fight to see who comes out on top. But I, I don't ever feel like that on any of our films. I feel like we've been working in tandem since the infancy of the project yeah totally i mean the infancy of the project and for the last how many years uh, quite a few years i think and i think it's great <laughs> on this one like three three or four years probably <laughs> since baby driver in yeah. fact um great example of that is like the sandy the sequence where ellie's running through soho with uh, always something to remind me that's like that that was a sequence that 
was a, a lot of prep work was done way before the mix in the Avid and with Steve and the sound team. And Steve is kind of throwing the kitchen sink at that sequence as are we, but it's all done in a very kind of, it, it could have easily, we could have, you know, spent two weeks mixing that one sequence and it could have turned into a complete kind of audio bleh, uh, mess. But um, I think because we all knew that that had a great possibilities as a sequence and B it had, it could easily kind of unravel itself and be um, a bit of a, a sonic uh, muddle. We, we all did our part in making sure that 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 when when we got to the mix you know all the parts were there in the right order so it was a question of mixing it and not trying to not trying to make it not trying to make it sound um make it sound as good as possible and not spend time trying to make it stop stop making it sound bad you know what i mean it's that those are the kind of things that constant communication with steve and edgar pay off in the prep i would say I want to ask you about that sequence, um, Stephen. Uh, you know, one of the things that I think is is um, uh, discussed about Edgar's work is that the there's a lot of source cues uh, existing. You know, music uh, from the era uh, that Edgar uses quite creatively to set mood and tone. So, what's your relationship with the source cues, um, and are they? Do they, are they kind of handled in a completely separate sort of work track from the score? Are you working them into score? Like, how's your, what's your relationship with it? And maybe that's a, the, the sequence that Julian mentioned is a good one to, to discuss. Yeah, I mean, that's probably one of the sequences where we've, we've pushed some of the techniques we've been developing for several films as far as we've ever pushed them further than we've pushed them. And for me, we have these amazing resources, these, these source songs that are there, but we never kind of just use them purely as that they're always you know how can these help the stories how can we actually look at them in a slightly different way and sometimes that means me joining a, a source track with score and starting to change the meaning of the song as we go and sometimes as in the, the sandy shore track we really sort of took that song apart you know and it kind of morphs into this nightmare vision sort of revolution number nine type take on the thing which really plays into the story you know as uh, lead characters kind of experience is kind of melting all around us so does the track so for me the source tracks are kind of an opportunity to to give those songs another meaning as well you know and everything is always kind of explored as far as we can we can do with all of these things there's not a single track that's just planted in there without something else going on we might be tuning an element of the sound design to go with that track so it all feels like this constant experience and you know, again, it's it's all about being able to, to speak directly to, to Julian and his team and, you know, how can we help with this? How can you, you help us with that? And gradually these sequences come together. Paul and Edgar kind of guide us all the way through the process. And, you know, they will do things that then suggest more ideas to us. So the whole thing becomes this great big cycle of, you know, being inspired by what the other persons are doing. So, Stephen, your uh, your background is as a music editor, which is pretty unusual for a composer. But as you were just the process that you were just describing, I wonder if that's influenced by your background in music editing. If you approach it differently as a composer because of that background, I think it definitely gives me a, a sense that the entire soundtrack is important, you know. And I'm not just here to to do the score, and that's my bit, and everything else I don't care about. To me, this whole thing we've we've got to make the whole film swim you know we've got to make it feel like the whole thing is just just rolling along and feeling so intended and that the source tracks are part of that and we just everything is given its due due and um yeah that's some of that definitely comes from 
the fact I started with Edgar back on Scott Pilgrim versus the world. I was the music editor on, on that film. And some of these ideas we were playing with back then and it's just developed, but now I get to, to join along with score and then, you know, the score has its own life launching from all these tracks. So it's an ever evolving job. So, yeah. A mere 10 years ago, Steve. Well, I think we started talking about Baby Driver in 2007, Edgar and I. So it's been been a good chunk of time now. Yeah. No, that's how we first met, in fact. It was before Scott Pilgrim. It was like I was trying to write Baby Driver that far back and I wanted to help of somebody to break down the songs that I wanted to use. Because I didn't really, I don't read music or anything and I don't play any instruments. So I wanted to sort of break down the songs I wanted to use into musical terminology. And I think it was like our line producer at the time, Ronaldo Vasconcellos, who recommended you. And so that's when we met was to sort of do that, which was before Scott Pilgrim versus the world. And in fact, 10 years before Baby Driver came out as well. Exactly. Exactly. It's a, yeah, it's, it's been something that we've, we've constantly sort of tweaked and a project like this when I was, I was sending in demos, you know, I could, I couldn't do that with, with, many productions have the confidence to send in these pretty rough ideas and know that, you know, they were going to be listened to and maybe played with and ideas will come back. And, you know, I, I gave stems to Paul Matchless and he was happy for him to cut them into the cut. So when I first started seeing things, it had bits of my music there, which would then suggest other things that I could go and do. So it's just a nice open process that we've, we've developed over the years. I was just going to say, I mean, Steve's actually quite a fast composer. So, um, and I don't know, because I think Steve has been in the in the trenches and understands the time constraints that we are all under on a day to day kind of day to day basis. You know, I've seen, you know, Edgar watch a sequence, give notes and then, you know, Steve sending it back that afternoon, which is great because it just means that there's an immediacy that's going on as well, which um, is quite rare. I think that whole back and forth thing has benefited at all, really. The fact that we, you know, we're all kind of very much on it and very much keen to, to see how far we can take each sequence. So, you know, I'm often sending back things to, to Julian, Edgar, um, Dan Morgan, our dialogue editor. I, I stepped on his toes a lot on this film. There's lots of dialogue in the music tracks that's looping around and causing echoes, but he's very keen to do that and to, to see where we can take that. So it's, yeah, it's it's been a good one to play with. There's one actor... Um, he only has two lines in the movie, but one of his lines gets repeated in the score quite a lot. He says, uh, so she can sing. And it gets repeated as a, as a sample. And I saw him the other day in front of the cast and crew screening. And I said, hey, Terrence, I said, I said listen out in the soundtrack. You, you get quite a lot of airplay in the movie <laughs> because his line gets repeated over and over again. And that's something that's, I, I really like that aspect. It's interesting. It's interesting to mention Revolution Number no. Nine, which uh, to this day is still like a terrifying song and, and my least favorite Beatles song. But in the context of this film, like we'd use it as a thing, say, "Hey, let's do the Revolution Number no. Nine version of this kind of like sequence of this repeated dialogue," and um, and 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 that was something. I mean, it's, yeah, that's something that's like, like you said, it's unusual to take elements where you're sort of essentially sampling the movie and taking like dialogue and 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 bringing like elements from what Julian and Dan are doing into the score and vice versa. I think that can only come, you know, if we were doing this and it was the first time the three of us worked together, that stuff wouldn't be happening, you know? So it's, it's a huge benefit to sort of just having this more than, you know, like nearly two decades of working together, you know? 
Well, I was only going to say, you know, the, the looping dialogue aspect of it kind of played into the whole, you know, obviously there's a, it's heavily influenced by the 60s and we, you know, we wanted to try and, it's interesting when you go back and look at sound design of those movies back in the 60s, you know, before sound design was an even was even a thing, they had different, they used different techniques for for sound design. And, um, you know, we, we, what we wanted to do was to try and give it a kind of 60s flavor to it. And, and that's getting much more organic with the sound design than one would normally do. You know, we, you know, rather than just, um, there's a whole array of amazing plugins and stuff that can totally mangle sounds, but it, they're all kind of modern sounds. So we kind of through process of experimentation realized that actually the spookiness comes from organic sounds, organic sounds that are treated sometimes subtly and sometimes not so subtly. And that was a, that was a big thing from Edgo. It's like, you know, trying to take everyday sounds and putting a, a bit of a weird spin on them so that you're sometimes you, did I hear that right? Was that sounding a bit, you know, even if you don't appreciate because they're working quite um, subtly that you're, you're, you're messing with everyday sounds. And then of course, as the story progresses, we kind of twist that, twist that um, knife in a bit more and it becomes a bit more obvious and, and those sounds get treated a bit more. But um, that spinning, the, the repeating dialogue is just, and filtering dialogue, you know, having fun with filtering dialogue and it just becomes like a really weird, creepy, um, its simplicity makes it really creepy as opposed to just throwing, you know, which I, I am very tempted to do as a sound designer, you know, load it up with, uh, whooshes and bangs and kind of funky sounds but actually quite often in the dub edgar was edgar was being quite restrained and saying to us look let's you don't need to have as much stuff here it's let's set the vibe with realistic organic sounds that are slightly treated as opposed to going overboard in places so yeah it, it definitely made for an, a more organic kind of 60s vibe for the soundtrack I want to follow up on that. And you talked about influence and Edgar, you said previously that, uh, you know, you want to be sort of put all your cards on the table and, and tell your collaborators what was sort of influencing the approach. Were there specific films or you, you mentioned revolution number nine, specific songs that you pointed Stephen and Julian to in terms of like, you know, sixties, uh, sort of movies that kind of set the tone and the vibe that you were looking for in the film. I try to think if there's something that in terms of this, the sound work. I, I'm not. I'm not quite sure about that because it's more like I guess what we're doing is is creating, you know, the dissonance between the modern day and the past. I mean, I, I, I mean, in terms of you know, like in terms of like the the movies, it would be like a combination of like the sort of psychological thrillers and horror films that I liked of like the 60s and 70s, whether that be, you know. Roman Polanski or Michael Powell or Alfred Hitchcock or Dario Argento, Mario Baba. But then in, in a way, like the sort of the, the, the bigger influence in a way, in terms of actually the story is of the kind of the dramas of the time and like the sort of social dramas and even the sort of the B-movie exploitation films would be about young girl comes to London and, you know, has the temerity to want to be a star. And, um, and so there is like, so a lot of those kind of films, like both, you know, more well-known ones like John Schlesinger's Darling or like lesser known ones like Beat Girl from 1960 would sort of be a big influence on, on where the movie was going. And, you know, and sometimes there's things that are interesting where, <clears throat> and me, Stephen Junior can talk about this, where 
we had to take songs that are like mono songs, sometimes very like lo-fi. There's one song by the Graham Bond organization that's in the movie that's I think is like a live recording that's probably just recorded with one mic. And so to put those songs into like Dolby Atmos requires a lot of, you know, like work by these wizards to like make it kind of sound kind of like sort of, you know, kind of um, surround sound stereo is kind of quite remarkable. I try to think if the, I, I, it's a good question in terms of, I mean, it's interesting with the revolution number nine thing, but also I remember when you, when Steve did the first demo, um, there were these bits of found sound. It sounded to me like found sound mixed into the music. And particularly there was a sound of what sounded like a children's playground mixed in. And I was saying to Steve, I said, what is that? Like the, the kids like laughing. It's so creepy. What the hell is that? And then Steve, well, maybe Steve, you can explain where that came from. Well, yeah, it's, again, it comes back to this idea of trying to use instruments and techniques from the 60s. So I I'd immediately gone for the Mellotron because I love using Mellotrons anyway. But I kind of ventured into some of the other tapes, you know, because we've all got the flutes and the violins and all these things that, you know, you know from all those those records. But they also made all these sound effects tapes at the time for theatre use or whatever it would be. And I got one of these and um, on one of the keys, the C sharp, there was this sort of weird marketplace childlike kind of yelling kind of stuff and i put that into a certain sort of echo and started looping it all around and it was just the most chilling thing and it felt kind of period it felt like you were you were just listening in on on a 60s scene but it had been filtered through all of these sort of loops into the present day and edgar responded really strongly to that and that kind of launched the whole idea of of um the tape loops generally and, and trying to make our own versions of that and using bits of the dialogue that would basically be like echoes of the past they're kind of like calling through to the present day where ellie is um so those things were, were just great little little experiments that you know someone would respond to this is this is going to sound too um like specific but it's something that haunts me to this day <laughs> but like in in soho itself like the i mean and it's not so much the case now but when i first moved there like there was one specific street which is now completely gentrified into upmarket bistros and clothes shops but it was one of those like sort of um red light area streets and it was right by goldcrest which is obviously like a famous post-production house great windmill street and when you would walk up and down great windmill street which i would do like working for the last 20 years there were all these kind of like clip joints so clip joint is basically like where they're fleecing tourists in like naive tourists and uh charging them 250 pounds for champagne um not not unlike the story that happens in uh the kink song lola <laughs> for example so but those those clubs still existed and there used to be a woman that stood outside these clubs there was always a woman standing outside saying the same thing day in day out and having worked in soho for 27 years it's imprinted on my brain even though she's long long gone she used to stand outside saying Sexy bed show, sir. Sexy bed show. Sexy bed show, sir. Any man that would walk past you say sexy bed show. Now, the thing that made it extra creepy was that next door, in between these these clubs, and this this is still exists, there's a children's primary school, which is in the middle of all of these clubs. And so sometimes around break time, the kids are playing in the yard and you can hear the sound of kids playing next door to these like adult nightclubs and i just remember when i first moved to london and this is 
I, that that's the school is still there. Everything else is gone, and in fact, everything else is gone, and it's been made upmarket and gentrified. But the kids' school is there. But back then, when it was the sort of the dissonance of like the sex industry at a kids' school next to each other, that was something that was when I was a young person in Soho. I was like, whoa, what? How? And so when I heard that sound of the mellotron of the kids playing, I was like, oh my god, this is giving me great Windmill Street flashbacks. That is awesome. That's great. Uh, one of the things, Edgar, that uh, I've always enjoyed about your films is that you, um, you, there's such a playfulness and there's such a, a great energy in the way you use cinematography, camera movement, uh, sound design, music. And uh, one of the things I felt immediately, uh, you know, watching last night in Soho is like the first part of the movie is remarkably restrained for the three of you. Um, it's it's really really you know following Eloise as she's leaving home and coming to London for the first time and starting on this you know exploration of this new city and and her career you know there's not a lot of there's not a lot of camera movement there's not a lot of flash going on in the sound design and the music is pretty straightforward but then as she goes into Sandy's world then everything just opens right up so was that part of the uh, just the design concept for the film for you Edgar from the beginning and how did you work with these guys to to make that really that pop in that way. Yeah, it's definitely the idea is that it, it wasn't something where we wanted, it was a slow burn. You want to kind of lull people into a full sense of security that maybe this is going to be a, a, a gentle movie. And, and, and in a way like your Eloise's journey to London is that you're sort of slowly peeling away. You're undermining her confidence. Like at the start of the movie, she's sort of very confident about going to London and, making it big in fashion and then her confidence gets undermined and she essentially goes into retreat first by moving out of the halls of residence to stay in a bed sit on her own and then in her dreams she's retreating again into the 60s but there was definitely a, one of the sort of the things that we talked about very early on was the idea of holding back so that when you go to the first 60s dreams that's when i mean i think it was like julian it was your idea of kind of holding back so that the surrounds don't kick in until the first dream. So you might think that it would be a quieter movie, but then it's like it, it starts kind of 24 minutes in or whatever it is. I mean, but Junior, I think that was something that you came up with very early on. Yeah, well, it was, it was really just to make the moment you go into the, the world of Sandy in the 60s pop as much as possible. And you kind of think, well, it's like if you watch an action movie that starts off with the full action and all the visual effects, you've kind of got nowhere to go, really. You're just kind of repeating the same thing. So we thought about how, how do we do that? How do we make that moment pop as much as possible? So we essentially the first 24 minutes of the movie are almost a three-track mono. There is some there is stereo imagery in there, but it's narrowed up. It's all down the front. And... Um, and also being very reserved with the levels so it's kind of just and and the audience don't really won't hopefully won't it's not like you're going to sit there and turn to your person you're watching saying hello what's going on there's no surround information but it settles you into this kind of you know it's like watching a black and white movie you get within a few minutes you get into it and just accept it and then of course the moment when ellie walks down the uh, alleyway and then she comes out we just kind of it just means that we've rather than going from here to here we're going from right from almost from zero all the way up to 100 and it just blooms out so yeah we just wanted to make that moment pop as much as possible you know for the for the audience as, as much as it would for ellie 
it's an amazing, it's an amazing transition. And I, I presume that that's when you kind of opened up the Atmos track as well. Yeah, we go from we go from three track, you know, left, center, right, quite narrow down the front with reserved decibels to full on Atmos, everything surrounds, um, all enveloping. And that stays all the way through down into the club. And, um, you know, that's, that's what, that's where the whole kind of sonic tapestry starts to get very rich. I would say that's, that's from that moment onwards is where, and then we stay, it's not like that we, we don't, we, we, I experimented with going, you know, between modern day sixties and, but that was just too much, but you know, the, restraining for the first 23 and a half minutes or 24 minutes and then popping out and then staying in that in that full atmos um uh environment i think really helped it really helped that moment of realization of what was happening sonically that sequence is a good example as well as how how we would play with source music and that that track the silla black track that's playing only exists in its master the tapes are long gone so it's a it's a, a 60s mix you know and uh we had that playing on the record, but as Ellie enters 1960s London, we went back in the studio, we, we worked out the arrangement and we performed it all again with the strings and the brass and the, the drummer and the bass player so that when we did go into to the corridor into the 60s, Julian could bring up those tracks and the music then would go from being a little record playing to suddenly being this live performance. And as you go into the Café de Paris, you're in the middle of this performance, you know, and, and that sort of stuff was great fun to to play with the, the the players in the actual room when that record was re- originally done in Abbey Road Studio One. Oh, that's amazing! How, that must have been a lot of fun to go back and re- and and kind of dissect those original recordings and figure out how to reverse engineer them in the same studio as well, right? Absolutely, the same the same room that that those were done. The same amount of players. We worked out the arrangement; they didn't exist anymore, so we just did that by ear and kind of worked out what they were doing. And they're ar- amazing. Those arrangements are amazing, and the players respond because they, they're not used to all playing in the same room nowadays. So they all get excited. And it just, it felt like you were, you were stepping into a record. It was the weirdest thing. Um, and we used all, you know, Abbey Road still has all that fantastic old valve gear, same microphones probably were on those sessions. So yeah, it um, definitely a shivery day. So Edgar, I'm, I, I'm aware that we've only got you for another couple of minutes uh, and I appreciate you taking the time to talk to us, but um, just a couple of questions for you before, uh, before you jump off. And Julian and Stephen, I know you can stick around with me for another few minutes and talk about some specific sequences. But Edgar, I, I was just curious, um, you know, we talked about that opening up, but um, Dolby Vision and Dolby Atmos, how uh, were you able to utilize those technologies to sort of make this into uh, a, a much more sort of engaging and disturbing experience for the for the audience? I guess by its very nature, I mean, any film should be immersive, obviously. I mean, in this film, you're seeing everything through Eloise's perspective. So like a lot of my movies, like the main character is in every single scene. And in this one, really you know you wanted to feel like you were going down the rabbit hole with Eloise and you're experiencing the 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 story as she sees it and hears it so you know just within the mix anyway we you know what we're talking about opening it up and then sort of obviously with Dolby Vision and Atmos you can just take it a lot further I mean I really I really sort of love just I love the kind of like the, the the Dolby cinemas that are out there in the world because you know that you're getting like a 
not just the best experience, but there's a sort of level of quality control. So whenever I hear that there's a Dolby Cinema screening, I would like sort of direct people to, to that like screening of the movie because I know it's going to sound incredible and, and look incredible. So that's been, you know, like we, we've really on and, and not just with this movie and Baby Driver, but also remastering Scott Pilgrim in Dolby Vision and Atmos was an amazing experience. So it's a process that we really enjoy and um, and hopefully continue with. So Julian, Stephen, we were talking a little bit about that first sequence at the uh, at the at the Cafe de Paris, which is one of my favorite sequences in the entire film. You're playing so much with perspective, and and obviously, you, you know, the audience is getting used to this idea of Sandy and Eloise, and sometimes we see, you know see them in refle reflections from the others. But can you talk a little bit about what's going on in the track in that sequence? Because it's an incredibly complex and and immersive. And I, I just want to give you guys a, a chance to talk about how you put that sequence together. Well, from a sound design perspective, <clears throat> we wanted to um, be quite subtle in what we were doing so that uh, you weren't entirely sure whether it was happening or not. So as people walk past there's very and it's all quite dreamlike as well there's a deliberate thing to make that sequence very dreamlike and warm as opposed to the other sequences as the story progresses so you know we had fun filtering things like a, and giving things a really kind of weird dissonance to them but in a dreamlike state so after the uh, Scylla sings a song the applause is is mixed in with reversed applause and filtered applause um, the voices have this kind of backwards reverb effect on some of them, not all of them, which again is a very dreamlike thing, which as we go through the story, that effect in itself changes and becomes a much more kind of darker, severe thing. Um, but it was really to set it up so that it's, it's a, a sequence of m magical warmness but also you're not entirely sure did i just hear that was that something's not right but i'm not sure why so it was all kind of trying to be subtle in many places um and in fact with this with a syllab as as um steve says you know steve did this amazing kind of arrangement and score around the song he also kind of used you know various plugins to strip out the Scylla vocals so there's a moment in that in that sequence where we cut to the to Scylla Black and I've got not only the song the original song I've got the vocals separate and Steve's score doing its thing so we can then push with the perspective push and pull her vocals so that when we cut close to her I've got that kind of um uh I've, I've got the full arsenal to make it feel as real as possible and of course you know these recordings as I discovered on Baby Driver a lot of these and as Edgar alluded to these recordings that when you put them up dry on a mixing stage, they don't sound quite as lush as you would like them to. So um, there's a lot of work done with kind of getting out the nasty frequencies and trying to make a mono recording bloom out into full Atmos, which t takes a bit of time. But um, they're such great pieces of music. They're such evocative pieces of music that it's just it's great fun to work with them. I'd love for you to talk a little bit more about that because I, I, I'm just fascinated by this idea of you're, you're taking a lot of uh, mono music sources and making them into Atmos tracks. And can you just talk a little bit more about the process? Steven, you, you mentioned that in some cases you went back and, and actually you know, recreated the recording sessions, but was, was there any sort of uh, post-production magic and trickery that you used to kind of broaden those things out? 
there's certainly a couple of spots where you know where things were there's a graham bond organization live track that that um chaps talked about earlier and something like that you know we can do our things with eq we can try and separate things out but sometimes they're just lacking the frequencies that you need for a sequence like that you know you need it to feel like you're in the room and with that i remember tracking a, a bass guitar part and you know you could feed that into your mix in the in the, the room and just give it enough of that sort of low end that it just kind of you you were still really focused on the original track but we were just giving it some frequency support around the edges just so it would function as we needed it to in the film always respecting what was there but just doing what we needed to do to bring it to life really one of the sequences that I wanted to ask you about is um, <clears throat> the design of the vocals and the mix at the Rialto Club when um, when Sandy does her acapella audition uh, and sings the song Downtown. It's it's just it's haunting. It's so beautiful. Can you talk a little bit about uh, how you approached that particular sequence and how you put that vocal performance together? And was that was that actually Anna Taylor Joy who was singing? It is Anya Taylor Joy, and she not only sings that version of Downtown, but because she did that so beautifully. She's actually the voice throughout the entire score. So there's wherever you hear a female voice in the entire score, it is Anya as Sandy, you know, calling to us from the sixties, like a siren song thing. Um, but downtown was the first thing that we did with her. And I, I remember going to Elstree studios where they were filming one really early one morning to, to rehearse with her because we didn't know, you know, if this was going to work. And I went with a, a piano player and we we sat down to work out how we were going to do downtown. And it was really clear within the first 10 seconds that Anya can sing great. And she's got a lot of personality in her voice. And all of a sudden we went from this idea of having a cover version of downtown to this slowed down acapella thing, which she just performed. And we, we recorded it at um, British Grove Studios um, one evening and we just um, got a U67 up in front of her and did a a number of versions and and one of them just just sang you know and what you hear in the film with a little bit of, of you know post-production in terms of a little bit of reverb but really not much at all is Anya and there was talk of her doing it on set live and I, I know they they did that but there were so many angles that needed to match that, that we used that that pre-record for that and you hear that in the film and then when we passed that on through our process the music process through to Julian it was a case of giving him, here's our mix, and we separated out the reverb that we'd used to give him the option. And I think watching the film at the, the London premiere last week, it was kind of interesting how Julian took that and went from a very intimate sound to starting to, to make this this experience of it. I mean, Julian, you can you can talk about how you did all that. Well, there's not much to say. I mean, that was it. It just it was such a pure thing. It was such a many times, actually many times on Egger movies. You kind of think to yourself, I'm getting paid to do this. It's kind of amazing, you know, because you're just you're having so much fun doing what you're doing. And um, I remember that sequence when we all watched it back. It's like, my God, she's amazing. And it's just something so pure about it. And uh, I did very little. It was just an idea of making it very kind of much more um, almost naked to start with. And then as you get into this, as she gets into it, you just kind of bloom it out a bit and add the reverb. I actually did very little. I'd like to take a lot of um, uh, credit for it, but it's not the case. It, it was just, it was just one of those things that just worked. And, you know, sometimes to do very little is the best thing to do. So, you know, that's what I did. Well, certainly when you've got a performance that's that powerful, you know, sometimes the best thing to do is just get out of the way, right. And let it do its work. Yeah, totally. I mean, you know, um, and you, when you, and it, 
with something like that, everyone knows it. It's not like, you know, when that went up on the stage for the first time, we're all sitting there and we watched it through. You know, what happens is the way I like to work, you know, when you're doing a final mix, you run the first five minutes or you'll run the whole reel just, you know, with just all faders up just to have a look and see what we've got ahead of us. And that was a, I remember that being a moment of everyone just like jaw on the floor, you know, totally amazed at what she'd done. So, you know, it's, it's the only thing you can do is, is mess it up. So don't. <laughs> that must've been a great day. Um, I, I love what you talked uh, earlier about the slow burn and you, you start the film in a very sort of straightforward, very simple approach fashion. But then one of the things I love about the last third of the film is as Eloise, as her, as her, you know, her tenuous grip on reality starts to break down and we start to be concerned about her mental state, the sound design and the music both really uh, do a lot of, I would say lifting to give the audience the subjective experience of what she's experiencing and what the world is like for her. So can you, can you talk a little about, I'm, I'm thinking about the sequences with the faceless men and, and the kind of the breakdown that she has in the, in the workshop before she goes to the library. Can you talk about, uh, about the, the, the approach to the sound design and the music in those sequences and how you worked to sort of give the audience that experience of what, what was happening for her from an emotional standpoint? Uh, yeah, for, for me, the, the, as the, the film progressed and we go into that sort of darker world, it felt that everything needed to reflect this sense of her being overwhelmed. And so musically, certainly, the score gets a lot more orchestral. The scale gets bigger during that phase of the film. And a lot of the little seeds we've planted very early on, you know, the film starts with a, a, a little piano figure, a three-note piano figure. And as you get into the library, that's become a string ostinato and all of these little echoes from the past are coming through with the, the rhythms and gradually these things that might be a little tap in the, in the first reel are now a drum kit doing the whole rhythm of the thing. And that just felt like if we could make the, the journey a smooth sort of one that we felt things escalating as she kind of dissolved and the sounds get messier as well. You know, a lot of the, the, the processing of, of the orchestra becomes more extreme there. It's not a, a pure thing anymore. All of that's being put through tape boxes and distortions and guitar fuzz pedals, all that sort of thing. So the whole thing just felt like we could afford to, to make her experience feel more confused. And it builds this kind of momentum through all that rolling along. And um, yeah, certainly sound design wise, it, it felt like we were going back and forth a lot during those sort of sequences to make sure we were, we were each kind of not pushing too far too early and getting that sort of rise of the film in the right kind of way. Yeah, Edgar, as I said before, Edgar was spot on with his restraint. You know, I, I, in, in fairness, we wanted to put much more early on with regards to sound design. And Edgar would be like, no, this is a slow burn. Let's let's save that for later on. Let's not necessarily have that now. I mean, with those, the, the shadow men, they, you know, they obviously start off in 1960 Soho, but they start coming into Ellie's world in modern day. So we would take, we would take uh, sounds from the 60s and start bringing those into modern day. Um, and in fact, those, the, the Shadow Men were, there was a lot of experimentation with regards to how to make those guys sound. And we went, we tried a multitude of different effects and ideas and then realized that the simplest was the best, which was just their vocals and, you know, utilizing, you know, filters on their dialogue and this kind of emotive thing of the creepiness of these guys and what they were, you know, they were ultimately preying on Sandy. 
So um, yeah, they, they, it, it was it was a, an exercise in restraint at times, I would say. And, and Edgar, being the, the genius that he is, knew exactly when to crank it to number three, when to crank it to five, and when to put it to ten. Just one last sequence I wanted to ask you about, and it's the um, it, it's it's Sandy's first night in the uh, the dressing room uh, at, at the Rialto as she sort of starts to understand that this kind of this this promise of her of her big debut is turning out to be something quite darker and more sinister. And I feel like the sound design and the music all kind of kick into a higher level uh, in that sequence as well. Could you talk a little bit about the approach to that to that specific sequence? I love that sequence. I love that sequence for so many different, A, because the movie just takes a complete 90 degree turn. And also, you know, like you've got this, this very chirpy song, Puppet on a String, which is such a lovely pop ditty. Yet when you examine those lyrics and what it means for Sandy, and certainly within that sequence, it takes on a very dark tone. And then of course, you go, you've got the Rialto, this club where this kind of um, performance is happening and everything's great and everything's you know, uh, on the surface, very sweet and um, nothing too untoward. And then when we go backstage, you know, there's that lovely kind of tracking shot that Edgar does with all these different dressing rooms where you see that actually this is a really messed up place and there's a lot of people who have lost their way. Um, and so, yeah, we that was where we really wanted to kind of... Um, amp up the sound design with regards to i think steve alluded to this before that 60s kind of acid trip feel where you know you've got jack shouting down the corridor at her as she's trying to run away that's that that in turn is being spun into in into a kind of its own little soundtrack and i think that you know that again that's due to steve steve is working with that so you've got you know steve's score that's working with these repeated echoes of dialogue and then we kind of took that and worked around it so that it didn't become a a bit of a mess but it, it that's very much like um it's just a crazy sequence it, and, it, and it's and it's it's crazy for many different reasons but I, I i love it because it starts off being one thing and 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 takes this dark dark turn very quickly so i, so I think like julian's saying some of some of the 60s techniques that we were using in in a sequence like that you know uh, the the vocal delays you know we they're, they're deliberately kind of they sound quite quite coarse you know they're they're tape echo they're sort of they're they're not trying to be posh digital precise things they're distorting and they they're kind of the sound is melting away and it felt like that was reflective of the experience and some of the panning certainly in the music tracks around there as well you're being kind of over extreme with it in that 60s kind of a way you know things are suddenly appearing a backwards guitar might appear behind you in the, the left surround or whatever and it might fling around because you're literally playing with it like you used to and i think that kind of helped things feel like they were they were bedding into this unique vision of the 60s that edgar had kind of presented visually there was a lot of acid done on that dub stage <laughs> a lot of acid on all done. the films though this is the sad <laughs> thing yeah <laughs> well, it's funny that you mentioned that because, of course, you know, one of the things that you notice right away when you go back and listen to a lot of early stereo recordings of the 60s was that they were very eager to play with that new tool. And they were quite aggressive in terms of panning and, and how they used stereo imaging. And that, that must have opened up some really fun possibilities for the two of you as you were building these tracks to kind of emulate the, the feel of the 60s. Gotcha. I mean, I've always loved that. I grew up with the, the 60s records of my parents and I would go from speaker to speaker and you could have a completely different experience of some of those records, you know, listening to one speaker or the other. So 
I've always loved using panning and this was just a great excuse to do that and you know some of those Jimi Hendrix ridiculous pans of things going around sequences like the the Sandy Shore um track where we're running through Carnaby Street in London it's full of those kind of whipping things around and yeah just just embracing the the roughness of some of that stuff was fun to do you know it was kind of nice to push things as into distortion and embrace that you know that was it, it felt like we were making something that felt very earthy to me and that that suited the way that Edgar had shot it you know very it always feels very alive this film to me yeah because there's not much visual effects as a lot there's so much in camera stuff I, you know I go back to that term organic you know it, there's a lot of it was in camera it's not like and certainly the same was with baby driver where you get the first cut and there's lots of blue screen green screen temp effects it's all there and so I think we were all being very cognizant of that and wanted it to have an equally as organic flavor for for its imperfections as well as steve said there's happy accidents in there that um you wouldn't necessarily strive to look for but when they happen they're great they just work you know it's like um you know i know the the sound team spent many a night actually uh uh for for research but spent many a late night in soho going out and recording weird and wonderful sounds and there's there's stuff in in the movie that you just wouldn't be able to think of it's just happy accidents you know sonic stuff that that you know if i sat down at my library and thought okay let's try looking for stuff you just cannot you cannot find that stuff it's weird and wonderful and and sometimes it's a couple laughing outside ellie's room when it's when before the story is uh, she's just she's just started off in there you know it's a couple laughing outside and then maybe later on it's a couple arguing or some weird stuff that's going on outside and that's you know that's the happy accidents uh, syndrome you know stuff that you that just kind of you find and you put it in and it works great well um i love the movie it's really fantastic and the work that you both did is just spectacular in it so i'm 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 curious for it to get out into the world and for people to have the experience and to to, to respond to it it's really the movie's quite a lot of fun it's a it's a it's a it's a wicked little film that you guys have made glad to hear it i'll it thanks sir and always a pleasure to talk to you Thanks again to our friends Edgar, Stephen, and Julian for joining us. It's always a pleasure to hear how that team works together. And thanks to our friends at Focus Features for helping put this episode together. You can catch Last Night and Soho and Dolby Vision and Dolby Atmos at a Dolby Cinema near you. As always, we will have links to tickets in the show notes. But before you go, I hope you're subscribed to us, the Dolby Institute podcast. We've got more big episodes coming up including some interviews with a few legends of the craft that you will not want to miss. You can find links to our dedicated podcast feed in your show notes, or you can just search for Dolby wherever you get your podcasts. Until then, thanks again for joining us. This has been the Dolby Institute podcast. I'm your host, Glenn Kaiser. Our producer and editor is Michael Coleman. Our executive producers are Amanda Schneider and Jack Ferry, with production support by Taylor Hines. And our production coordinator is Sunny Chen. Thanks for joining us.